This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Today's guest is Dr. Lior Zmigrad, junior research fellow at the University of Cambridge in England, and she is the lead author on the recently published article, Cognition and Emotion in Extreme Political Action. So it, it's great to talk with you, Lior. Thank you for having me. So your current directions article focuses on why people engage in extreme political actions. Can you start off by characterizing what you mean by politically extreme ideologies and actions, why it's a problem or at least an issue for society to contend with, and perhaps give an example? So extreme ideological thought and action often involve dogmatic adherence to an ideological doctrine uh, to a radical degree, whereby individuals support violence and sometimes self-sacrifice in the name of the ideology. Now, it's, it's interesting because it's tempting sometimes to label some ideologies as extreme and others as normative or non-extreme. But from a psychological perspective, we can acknowledge that all ideologies can be adhered to and practiced in an extreme way, in a way that fosters some kind of violence or hostility or prejudice. So every ideology can be taken to an extreme degree, and that poses a lot of fascinating theoretical and methodological questions, uh, such as when we study why people engage in extreme political action, we want to separate the content of the ideology, so whether it's left-wing or right-wing, or whether it deals with supernatural agents or not, um, and look, separates the, the content of the ideology from how it's practiced, its structure, how dogmatically or extremely it's practiced uh, and believed by an individual. So when we're thinking about the extent to which extremism is an issue, we can think about it in two dimensions, at least. We can think about it in terms of the social, uh, the kind of political dimension, and at the level of the individual. So at a societal level, we know that extremism breeds hostility, violence, prejudice, uh, a tendency to be in terms of all these predetermined roles and essences, rather than seeing them as the idiosyncratic individuals themselves who exist freely and authentically in the world. So ideologies often dehumanize people, both the adherents and the outgroups, uh, because people are reduced to their roles in relation to the ideology. Um, and so we can, we can think about all the ways in which extremism is problematic uh, in those cases. But the second dimension, and I guess this is what we explore in, in the current directions paper is about the cognitive and emotional repercussions of engaging with ideologies in an extreme way. So thinking about how it narrows our cognition or constrains the scope of our emotions. So in understanding why people are led to extreme political views and actions, one might look for situational factors like whether there's an economic recession or affiliation motives like people's need to feel like they belong to some group. And you don't deny these influences, but your research stresses a rather different set of considerations. Can you talk about the kinds of factors that you've particularly been looking at? That's right. So the focus of my research is on the neurocognitive elements of engaging in ideologies. And, and I can tell you that the question that fascinated me and maybe that helps to disentangle these kind of situational, motivational and cognitive processes. So the, the question that I thought of from the beginning was 
imagining a community where everybody is experiencing the same kinds of social, economic, cultural pressures or deprivations and challenges. And even within a given community of that kind, there's still going to be variation. There's still going to be people who are very dogmatic, who when an ideology comes into view, they're going to be adhering to it quickly. They're going to be adhering to it passionately. And we see that historically whenever tyrannical regimes take place somewhere, some people will be very passionate believers and others will be more doubtful and unconvinced. And so if we, we kind of strip away these, or temporarily strip away these situational contextual factors, we still see variation. And so that's why I kind of turn to the brain, to cognition, to emotion, and to think about how neurocognitive traits, how individual differences and in how people process information and how their process emotions and even their neurobiological characteristics how those shape people's engagement with extreme ideologies and why they make some people more vulnerable than others. So several of the studies that you reported in your current directions articles uh, were quite striking to me because they indicate uh, compelling, surprising correlations across individual differences that I never would have guessed. For example, cases where performance on a simple perceptual judgment is related to people's political ideology. Can you describe some of these amazing studies? Yes, so many of the studies use core neuropsychological tasks from the cognitive psychology canon. So ones that everybody would have learned about in Psychology 101 or Cognitive Science 101. And we use those to quantify individual differences in cognitive processing style and to examine how that relates to people's ideological worldviews. And so some of this research is very theory driven, where we think very deeply about why certain cognitive styles might be related to certain ideological tendencies. And some of it is actually data driven, where we collect these really rich data sets and then kind of let the data speak and see how those patterns exist there. Um, and so from the more theory driven research in, in the kind of stream of experiments and papers, we look at cognitive flexibility. So asking participants to complete these classic neuropsychological cognitive flexibility tasks, such as the Wisconsin card sorting test, where participants must learn to sort cards according to a particular rule. Um, and after about a dozen trials, the rule changes and we see whether people are adaptable um, in response to the change in the rule. And some are, and some are rigid and stick and perseverate with the rule that they previously knew. And in a number of studies, we looked at how this kind of cognitive rigidity might lend itself towards ideological rigidity. Um, and we find that in the Wisconsin card sorting test, along with many other kinds of uh, linguistic and generative measures of, of flexibility and rigidity, we find that people who are cognitively rigid tend to be also ideologically rigid. They tend to be more dogmatic. They're more likely to endorse violence in relation to a cherished ideological group. And this is really fascinating, right? Because it suggests that the rigidity with which individuals are processing information and forming decisions or responding to stimuli, that also seems to be linked to the rigidity with which they engage in the political world. So that's kind of one, one set of experiments, but we also have some studies looking very much at perception, like you alluded to, and that goes maybe even one step deeper <laughs> into these cognitive uh, processes. Um, and in, in these studies, we give people 
even more basic perceptual tasks. So all these kinds of uh, two alternative force choice tasks where individuals basically need to make a decision between two stimuli or two responses. So whether that's looking at where the dots are moving to the right or to the left of the screen or making all of these kinds of very basic perceptual judgments. Um, and we use computational modeling such as drift diffusion modeling to quantify individual differences in these perceptual and decision-making characteristics at the very, very lowest levels of sensory perception, uh, which is fascinating. So it is quite a big, um, a big difference, right, between the sensory level and the political level. Um, but even with the, these kinds of studies, we find these fascinating patterns between how people um, respond on these perceptual tasks and how they respond politically. Um, so I can give some, some examples from, uh, maybe one example would help make this more concrete. So when we look at these perceptual decision-making tasks where people are making very simple basic uh, decisions between two sensory stimuli, we find that individuals who have what we call slower evidence accumulation and cognitively uh, in the computational literature that's low drift rate, they're slower to integrate sensory evidence in these perceptual tasks. So as they're perceiving sensory evidence coming into their decision-making process, they do so more slowly. Um, so dogmatic individuals, dogmatic in the sense that they are less receptive to evidence, that they're more hostile to alternative perspectives, those people seem to have some kind of impairment. They're slower in how they're integrating sensory evidence, uh, which is fascinating because it means that dogmatism at the level of how you relate to ideological political evidence is somehow tied to or linked to or related to at least how one is processing evidence at the sensory level. Uh, and this naturally raises a lot of fascinating questions about causality uh, that, <laughs> that we can also talk about. But a lot of that is still uh, speculative because it's still a kind of science that's in its infancy. Following up on that causality question, if we train people to be, uh, I don't know, less cognitively or perceptually rigid in a two alternative force choice task, will that change their political behavior? <laughs> um, if, if it does, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, but um, we haven't yet done these kinds of studies. And part of it is because I think it's it's valuable to really think carefully about the likelihood of that happening, right? Some of these are still small effects. The fact that they exist at all is, is astounding. And the fact that we see them replicating in different samples is amazing. Um, so I'm still hesitant to take it all the way to the applied side, because although we're trying to strip down the cognitive from the situational, naturally it's all occurring in these very complex interactions, which is actually part of what we emphasize in the paper, the fact that we need to look at interactions between a lot of different kinds of psychological variables in order to paint um, a kind of comprehensive picture of people's behavior. Right, right. So it, it seems like one of the possible implications of the patterns of correlated individual differences that you're finding might be that you could expect extreme conservatives and extreme progressives to be more alike than they would like to believe. Um, are there data bearing on that hypothesis? For example, do people often switch from extreme conservative to extreme progressive positions, politically speaking, or vice versa? 
So one of the insights that we gain from this kind of cognitive approach to ideologies is that like you noted, we do see similarities between people who are extreme partisans on the right and people who are extreme partisans on the left. So they do have some cognitive similarities. For instance, in the case of rigidity, we find, um, or I guess we can talk about in terms of flexibility, we find this very persuasive and robust inverted U-shaped curve where political moderates or people who, who don't see themselves as affiliating very strongly with a political party, and this is particularly in the US where it's a binary, <laughs> so it's in some sense a little more simple than in many other political systems. Um, we find that people who are on the extreme ends perform worse on our cognitive flexibility measures. So we do start to see that kind of inverted U-shaped curve that harkens back for many people all these horseshoe theories about ideologies. So it, it is interesting. We do see that in the cognitive uh, data. Um, with regards to changes in ideological worldviews, that's a little harder to quantify um, and predict. But actually, these changes are really useful scientifically when they do happen, because those changes elucidate a lot about what it means to change either from one ideology to the next, or what it means to basically leave an ideology or enter an ideology. So I do often pay attention to um, how whether people are kind of leaving an ideology, specifically often in the case of religion, that's a little easier um, and more concrete for people to indicate whether they grew up in a religious home, in a devout home that had um, involved in a lot of ideological rituals, or whether they and whether they left that or whether they entered it. Right? Some people grow up in atheistic environments and then choose to adhere to a religion later on. So, in some of, of my work on on that, looking at changes is really interesting. So I don't know if people often switch, um, and that, that's so dependent on historical conditions, but when they do switch, for us as cognitive scientists, that's that's a dream. <laughs> Oftentimes in psychology, uh, cognitive and emotional factors are kept separate in terms of their influence on behavior, whereas in your work, it seems that there are oftentimes critical interactions between cognition and emotion. Can you elaborate on what some of the dynamics of these interactions look like when it comes to political ideology? Yes, so it is really um, interesting and valuable to think about these kinds of interactions. Uh, and in the paper, we, we stress to think about cognition and emotion, even though sometimes the binary itself is a little difficult, right? What, what counts as cognitive information processing and what's emotional information processing? I mean, we, we can separate it and define it clearly for the purpose of uh, research and theory, but when we think about it, a lot of uh, inputs can be conceived as emotional. But in any case, maybe going back to the example of what we found with regards to Kind of evidence accumulation impairments and dogmatism. What's interesting about that is dogmatic people were not only not only had this kind of cognitive or sensory impairment in how they processed information, but they also tended to be more impulsive emotionally. And that's really interesting because it starts to clarify the kind of cognitive profile of what it means to be dogmatic. Because if you are slower to process sensory evidence as it's coming into your, your perceptual systems, but you are also more impulsive, that means that dogmatic individuals might be making premature impulsive decisions based on evidence that they didn't fully understand. So looking at the emotional and cognitive contributions helps us paint 
a more uh, comprehensive, interesting portrait of what all these kind of ideological signatures look like. And we, we talk about that too in the context of extremism, thinking about what it means, for instance, for a person who is highly cognitively rigid, which is one, one thing, one predictor of extremism, but also highly sensation seeking emotionally, which is another predictor of extremism. And thinking about all the different constellations of people who might be actually cognitively flexible, but also sensation seeking and why those people might be susceptible to ideological doctrines that inflame the emotions, uh, but might not necessarily involve uh, rigid thinking to the same degree. And so thinking about all the different pathways that people can take into ideologies and therefore maybe also ways out, <laughs> but that's another question, um, is, is really valuable. And so this tension or these interactions, which are not always linear, right? They, they might have all these really interesting um, kind of amplification effects when you have multiple traits that put you at risk. Uh, that's I think that's a more realistic science, right? A science that isn't just, okay, a one trait will predict all of this kind of the whole range of this behavior, but actually a cocktail of traits that together interact in a, a number of ways that actually lead us into a better understanding of causality. Popping up a level for a final question, am I right to be assuming that we should always or at least usually be trying to avoid political extremity um, and if so do you have recommendations for how we should be thinking about reducing political extremity <laughs> that's the million dollar question isn't it um, but yes i mean i think one one important aspect of this is to remember that ideologies are fundamentally stories Right. They're fundamentally narratives about the causal structure of the world, about why the world is the way it is, how we should act within that world, what happens when we perform certain actions, what consequences they have in either physical, natural, or, or kind of psychic world. Um, and, and so this, given that ideologies are these narratives about reality, we need to remember that reality very rarely actually conforms neatly <laughs> to these kinds of principles and prescriptions that ideologies offer. So what that means is that when we take ideologies to the extreme, sometimes we might be moving further away from reality <laughs> as we might experience it without the glasses of ideology. So we're moving further and further away from complexity and nuance. So Part of this research is about showing that extremity is not only toxic for societies or for communities, but also for our minds, <laughs> for, for our existences. Um, and so I think there is a lot of value in avoiding extremity um, and rigidity and dogmatism and tendencies towards violence. How we do that is, is very complicated. And in, in some of this research, like we've been discussing, there's some hints that maybe if we amplify people's flexibility, if we um, kind of create educational systems that foster complex thinking, that facilitate even just basic executive functions, that's always good. Similarly, on the emotion side, helping people regulate their, their emotions in a healthy way is important in allowing them not to be swept up by highly evocative emotional rhetoric that politicians and propaganda often employ. So we're starting to get hints at how, how we can reduce political extremity. Um, and I think that sometimes the power of the psychological approach, even though sometimes people think this is the limit of it, but I think the power is that it, some, it somewhat puts it in the hands of the individual or in the mind of the individual, that one can 
foster one's own flexibility, one's own intellectual humility, receptivity to evidence, um, and kind of a critical stance to the world that still allows us to feel meaningful and a sense of belonging to a world so that we live both meaningfully and happily in the world that we know is complex and very rarely reducible to these kinds of things. So that's all the time we have for our conversation with Dr. Lior's Migrad. Thank you very much, Lior, for the fascinating conversation. Thank you.